Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. I had originally... Uh, planned a, uh, the next lesson in Chronicles, and we, we are right on the precipice of some very sweet things, the age of Abraham, uh, an advance, a great advance in the revelation of the coming re Redeemer, our, our blessed and, and beautiful Jesus, our lovely Redeemer. Um, and I am in some ways very anxious to uh, to get on to those things uh, so that we might delight ourselves in, in gazing upon our lovely Redeemer. But I have also uh, been quite preoccupied with issues pertaining to unity. So I had some some time and at some length of time planned one lesson and then very hastily put together another one. Matthew chapter 23, beginning in verse 1. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples, saying, The scribes and the Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do, do not ye after their works, for they say, and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men. They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feasts and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased. He that shall humble himself shall be exalted. But woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For ye neither go in yourselves, neither suffer ye them that are, go, that are entering to go in. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayer, therefore ye shall receive the greater damnation. 
Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye compass sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he is made, ye make him twofold more the child of hell than yourselves. Woe unto you, ye blind guides, which say, Whosoever shall swear by the temple, it is nothing. But whosoever shall swear by the gold of the temple, he is a debtor. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gold or the temple that sanctifieth the gold? And whosoever shall swear by the altar, it is nothing. But whosoever sweareth by the gift that is upon it, he is guilty. Ye fools and blind, for whether is greater, the gift or the altar that sanctifieth the gift? Whoso therefore shall swear by the altar, sweareth by it, and by all things thereon. And whoso shall swear by the temple, sweareth by it, and him that dwelleth therein. And he that shall swear by heaven, sweareth by the throne of God, and by him that sitteth thereon. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye pay tithe of mint and anise and cumin, and have omitted the weightier matters of the law, judgment, mercy, and faith. These ought ye to have done, and not to leave the other undone. Ye blind guides, which strain at a gnat, and swallow a camel. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye may clean the outside of the cup and of the platter, but within they are full of extortion and excess. Thou blind Pharisee, cleanse first that which is within the cup and platter, and the outside of them may be clean also. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For ye are like unto whited sepulchres, which indeed appear beautiful outward but are within full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness. Even so ye also outwardly appear righteous unto men, but within ye are full of hypocrisy and iniquity. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because ye build the tombs of the prophets and garnish the sepulchres of the righteous and say, if we had been in the days of our fathers, we would not have been partakers with them in the blood of the prophets. Wherefore ye be witnesses unto yourselves, that ye are the children of them which killed the prophets. Fill ye up then the measure of your fathers. Ye serpents, generation of vipers, how can ye escape the damnation of hell? Wherefore, behold, I send unto you prophets and wise men and scribes, and some of them ye shall kill and crucify, and some of them shall ye scourge in your synagogues and persecute them from city to city, that upon you may come all the righteous blood shed upon the earth, from the blood of righteous Abel unto the blood of Zechariah son of Barachias, whom ye slew between the temple and the altar. Verily I say unto you, all these things shall come upon this generation. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, 
thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee. How often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chicks under her wings, and ye would not. Behold, your house is left unto you desolate. For I say unto you, ye shall not see me henceforth till ye shall say, Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. So issues pertaining to our unity as, as a people continue to, I don't know, haunt me. I can't uh, I can't get them out of my out of my mind. I can't say that my my sense of things is altogether accurate. It's not always easy to to see clearly, especially not over uh, many miles. But it seems to me that there are yet those uh, little foxes that are uh, spoiling the vine. Um, things about us more or less subtle, maybe even some things quite subtle, but but at the end of the day, things that can have uh, big consequences. We've talked about this a good bit, but in our unity, there is much at stake uh, from relatively personal things like if we maintain unity, it contributes much to my own edification. I have um, the gifts and graces of my brethren available to me. So how important is our unity? Well, how important is my own edification to me? Um, healthy relationships do a lot to breed happiness. I'm not saying our happiness in this world is the be-all and end-all of things, and yet um, it's certainly nothing to, uh, to sneeze at. It is good, uh, exceeding good, for brethren to dwell together in unity. When we are unified, uh, our gospel witness in the world is... Um, is magnified, it is adorned and beautified uh, by the love that the saints have for one another. Um, to the extent there is uh, disharmony in our in our midst, we are we are casting a cloud over our own. Uh, testimony and the holy religion of Jesus. And, of course, God's glory is very much tied up. When we love one another and people see that supernatural reality in our midst, it tends very much to his glory. Uh, when they see us unable to get along, they are, they are not impressed. And... Um, insofar as in us lies, we have robbed God of his glory. So I wanted to look at just another thing 
this evening, there, there is a certain kind of mind that is attracted to extreme positions. Now, there are other kinds of minds that are always attracted to uh, moderate positions, uh, vanilla as it were, but there is a kind of mind that by its habit and disposition, it's always attracted to extremes. And if I might say so, in my um, lengthy abiding now in in reformed circles, I would have to say that I have encountered probably a disproportionate number of minds of this kind. They are uh, attracted to the extremities almost for the extremity's sake. So let me give you some snapshots of this. You might have recognized these kinds of things. Perhaps I'm saying something to you that you already well know and you're not surprised at all, but uh, some things that made an impression upon me in my in my pil Christian pilgrimage. I remember uh, visiting some friends in Texas one time, and I always did delight to hear uh, Reformed theology in a in a Texas accent. There's something peculiarly charming about it. But I had uh, one of my friends there ask me the question, how is it that Reformed theology got married to a cultural Amishness anyway? And it was a really fantastic question. Because when you look at historic Reformed theology, you you wouldn't join those things together. Um, Reformed theology is what it is, but one of its beliefs with respect to uh, cultural things that uh, is that we would be culturally normal, uh, only out of step in as much as the, the culture is em embracing and commending a sinful thing. But like the ancient Christians, there was no distinctive reformed way to dress or you know, speak or any of those any of those kinds of things. Um, but in the present age, minds that are attracted to extremes could very well be attracted to both of these things at the same time. I'm uh, with I'm attracted to Reformed theology right now because it's somewhat on the outskirts of culturally accepted belief, and I am attracted to cultural Amishness because it is also, whereas historic Reformed theology was always pretty culturally normal. So that was just one snapshot and said in a way that really made an impression upon me. That is a good question. Why is that? Um, we, we think in and speak like Calvin, but we dress like Nino Simmons or something. I don't know, very peculiar. Um, a second uh, snapshot, something that was said to me not too long after I discovered the regulative principle and embraced exclusive uh, psalmody. I had 
another Reformed brother who did not agree with me about those things, but he, but he said to me, um, he said, as you, as you get into and you move in those groups, none of those people are able to get along with each other. Okay, so I kind of want to be defensive at that point and maybe even point out some things like, well, you don't necessarily need those kinds of things to uh, have, have a mess in a congregation or something like that. Um, But if I'm being honest and in my heart of hearts, the criticism just seems all too true. As I moved into those more, um, in, into those closer circles where there are fewer inhabitants, um, frequently there could be more in the way of agreement and yet strangely, perhaps even less in the way of uh, unity, peace, and concord. Again, um, when when folks say something like that, that doesn't necessarily mean that they're right. But when you start to hear it a lot, it's good to probably at least pause and to consider, could there be something at work there? And I think so. I mean, especially if if you have a group where you have those kinds of minds that are ju that just tend toward uh, extremities. There's always a further extremity to go that could disrupt the harmony. And, and we'll come to this. There was there's a a Puritan expression about it called affected singularity. And of course, when you start to use words like singularity, it doesn't sound like it's tending very much to unity anymore. But we'll come we'll come back to that. Uh, I don't know about you, but I have now. This is not so much of a snapshot of a particular moment in my life, but just a general observation. Um, the very strange competition in our midst for who's going to get to be the most reformed or something. Um, if you're not familiar with that, then, you, then you've probably never met the internet yet. But if you ever meet the internet, you will, <laughs> you will see, you will see the, the competition uh, raging. Who gets to be, uh, who gets to be the most reformed? And when you start to use words like most, you're really looking for uh, extremity, right? Um, and you know, I, I think maybe something else that made me made me sensitive to this issue, especially as I started to see it in others, is I think that I think that I that I have one of those kinds of minds. I think that that's true, but there, but the Lord has done a couple of things that I think have have helped me. 
and have, have tempered my tendency uh, toward extremes. First of all, he um, put me in the, in the uh, pastoral office and, and with that came a, a deep-seated sense of responsibility for, for the unity of the people and, and, and trying, to, trying to help a group of people hold together and, uh, and hang together. Not a lot of, not a lot of room in that for pursuing extremities for extremities' sake. Uh, I'm trying to hold people together, not have not have every person going off on their own tangent as they, as they chase down an extreme of one kind or another. So there was the group or the corporate element that was, that was helping me. But also. Um, I don't, this is not an easy thing to articulate, but um, as my relationship with the Savior uh, deepened and became more, more deeply personal, I became less and less about where a position might rest on the spectrum is it in the middle of the spectrum or at one of its ends or even a complete outlier and simply became more and more concerned is it is it an accurate description of him because i want to see jesus as he is and I became quite convinced by the scripture and by, by long experience that any sort of misunderstanding that I might have of him, any sort of misapprehension um, could do nothing other than obscure his beauty from my eyes. But I have wanted to see him. I, I do want to see him and I do want to see him as he, as he is. And that really, that really tempered any kind of um, tendencies toward extremities for, for extremities' sake. So um, just a little bit of the description of some of the, the terms that I'm, I'm using. Um, there's all different kinds of ways that truth is defined, and I'm not after, a, not after a technical definition here or whatever, but I'm just talking about it, um, a thing being what it is, you know, it, it is, it is what it is. And our job is to apprehend it as it is. Now, when we talk about, uh, our view of something, we can also compare it to what you might call a, like an accepted cultural range of views. So, um, you know, any particular culture will probably have a, not just one particular view of a thing, but maybe like a, a range, larger or smaller, depending upon the culture and depending upon the issue of, of things that as a culture it will put up with, <laughs> right? Whether, that, whether that's a, a belief 
and a, a truth commitment or some sort of practical implication of it. And so with respect to that, when you look at a cultural range, you can be kind of in the middle of that, or you could be out on the extremes, or you could even be a complete outlier in your view. So for example, if we, if we were talking about um, like American political views or whatever, we've got, we've got our right and our left wings, You'll hear, hear people talk about the extremes of those right and left wings. Obviously, the implication is that there are others that move toward the center of those, those kinds of things. So as you get out onto the right extreme or wing, you, like, I guess now almost a generation ago, you had like Tea Party people, and now you've got uh, like Freedom Caucus or whatever, right? They're on the extreme of what the culture puts up with with respect to political views. As establishmentarians, we're just complete outliers, right? We we don't really fit in in the in the range at all. But you know, you'll have an accept, accepted cultural range. But interestingly enough, if we think about it deeply. Um, the cultural range is actually irrelevant in the search for truth because cultures will position themselves with respect to true things. Um, sometimes it might, you know, a culture on a particular true thing might be oriented rightly. So the truth is like right in the center of the, the range. And the extremes to the right hand or to the left are moving away from the truth. But it could be the culture is just a little off and the truth is out towards one of the extremes. It could be that a culture is so completely off that the truth or the true position is, is actually a complete outlier altogether. Um, right? We, we seek truth not by not by cultural range, but by God's revelation, whether that be God's revelation in nature or in scripture. That's how we seek and pursue truth. The cultural range is is just a description of what a what a particular uh, culture will put up with, really. But at any rate, there, there are, there is a particular kind of mind that's always, that's always wanting to press out toward the extremes and whatever that that range that range is, and it raises the question, why would you do that? Now there are some people that, whether they're, whether they're timid or somewhat disinterested or whatever. Maybe they don't want the fuss. They just, um, you know, they just always kind of in, try to get into the center of whatever the, the culture's doing. Or maybe they even have a view of the truth that it's likely in the middle someplace. You've probably heard people articulate that. It's actually not, that's actually not a good, sound, or, or healthy view. The truth is what it is. The cultural spectrum is what it is. 
they may or may not cohere uh, very well. But in any event, there is, a, there is a kind of mind that is pressing toward extremes, and I, I, think it's relevant, I think it's relevant to us, and we're not the first people to experience this kind of thing. If I could take you back to, uh, to say, late 16th, early uh, to mid-17th century Scotland, the Reformed theological position was at the center, at least ecclesiastically. Like if you look at the church as a culture and you look at its range, then our commitments would have been in the center. It's, and maybe you had some churchmen that are maybe pressing this way or, or that way within that, but we were, uh, you know, we were in the center. But even then they would complain about there's a certain kind of mind that is always, um, that can't rest content with that, but is always, that's always pressing out toward the, the extreme, maybe even the outrageous. And um, our fathers in the faith diagnosed that as affected singularity. Uh, Kind of like the, the the notion that in that there's like this vainglory or pride in wanting to hold a position or to have an insight into something that nobody else has, and the scripture warns us about this. It warns us about this in um, in example. The Pharisees as a group, when you looked at if you, if you looked at Judaism, like the Jewish church as a whole in the day, in the day of Jesus, if you look at it as a whole, uh, the Pharisees were uh, pressing out always toward an extreme. Generally speaking, normal people were quite impressed with them because it made them look uh, really, really serious. Um, but we're, but we're warned everywhere that there was a certain sort of pride and vanity in, in uh, doing that. As they did that, as they pre pressed out towards extremities, they, they wanted to be seen by men and they wanted to be perceived as peculiarly uh, religious. Um, Paul talks about this kind of thing a little bit when he warns us that uh, knowledge puffeth up, but charity edifieth. Now, um, that's not like a like it's not a necessary consequence of knowledge. If we know stuff, then we we get puffed up or whatever. Um, but we do know that um, we can pursue knowledge out of pride. And having attained knowledge, we can become proud of the fact that we, the fact that we know things, right? And so there's not a necessary connection between those things. We need to be growing in knowledge, but we also need to be growing in in grace and humility, not not in pride. And when we when we attain things in knowledge, Paul would challenge us: What do you have that you've not received? This has been given to you uh, as a gift. So we need to be so we need to be really careful and really mindful. The, 
the reason we, at least one of the reasons we might strike out towards extremes might not have anything to do with the fact that the truth is out there, although it might, but it could be a desire for this affected singularity, kind of like the Gnostic impulse. I want to be perceived to be having uh, an insight that that nobody else has, and doesn't that make me doesn't that make me wonderful or something like that? And usually, um, when it's this kind of mind, it won't just be in one thing. We might have um, a tendency towards extremity pressing us out to Reformed theology, which of course I believe to be true, but um, when you look at broad American culture, it's way out in the extreme. Even when you look into like church culture, it's still kind of at the right wing of the right wing where you know where we are. So it might be attracted to that, but then with respect to culture issues and say. I don't know, we want to be extra special, modest, more than other people, then we kind of become Amish in the way that we dress and behave or, or whatever. Usually it will appear in, in more than one way. So you might you might get this vainglorious singularity in not just in theology, but in but in culture, uh, maybe maybe political view. Uh, perspectives on science and medicine are big issues right now, but as as I mentioned, and think think to what I what I mentioned at the beginning, and connect the dots. Um, sorry that this is no more better structured in my in my speech here, but um, it's kind of obvious now how it's destructive to unity, right? If there's if there's this um, this impulse toward a affected singularity, then we're actually trying to difference ourselves. It's it's not the same thing as you know I want the truth because I want to see Jesus the way that he is, and I hope everybody else in this regard sees him as he is and so we all kind of settle down into a unity and there at that point that that rests right it doesn't need to go for and and that and that particular thing it doesn't need to go further you found the tr the truth and so you can simply rest on it affected singularity doesn't do that as a matter of fact that very model becomes undesirable right because i'm not being distinguished i'm not differentiating myself from the the crowd if i'm holding this one position with everybody else i don't look smarter than anybody else or cleverer than anybody else or or whatever uh, you you get the you get the point and i think we can also see why um why minds that are attracted to extremes might, if they get interested in Christianity, might come toward Reformed theology because it just so happens that at this particular point, we are kind of out on the, the right wing of the 
right wing. And if they can find that with some other bits of extremity, like, um, you know, bizarre dress or other bits of cultural weirdness, um, they might think that this is this is um, this is wonderful. But but it's not going to it's not going to sit or it's it's not going to settle there. It's there's always going to be this desire to distinguish, to differentiate, and with that comes trouble with respect to to unity. Well, one of the important things in in uh, preaching is is giving marks for diagnosis. How do I know if I'm if I'm having this this kind of problem? And um, I mean, on the one hand, hopefully, hopefully we could do some of the internal work and simply simply ask ourselves. Um, and I should say this just to be clear. It's altogether possible to hold a true position in a wrong way in a diversity of ways. And this is just one way. Like we can hold a, tr a true position and come to it in the wrong way. Like you could hold a true biblical position, but hold it not because you saw it coming out of the Bible and you receive it with a divine faith because you believe God said it, but you, your favorite teacher said it or whatever. It actually could end up being the true position, but you're not holding it for the right reason. Or we could hold a true position, but not hold it in a right manner or truly. We hold a true position, and but then not do correct things with it. So our sinfulness is such that even in holding the truth, we can misrelate to it in a wide variety of ways. And this is just one of the ways. But we could ask the question in, in pursuing the truth and holding to the truth and contending for this particular truth. Um, am I am I doing it because I um, I see that it's taught in the scripture. Jesus is more clearly revealed to my eyes, and He's lovely. He's beautiful to me. Um, when I talk about it with others, and this is probably the point at which we're going to come to know ourselves best, when I come to talk about it with others, do I do it because I'm wanting to help them? I'm hoping that they will be able to see the glory of the Savior as I am saying it, or am I... Am I sharing this because I want them to think that I'm clever, that I'm insightful? Am I hoping that, um, like, am I trying to win a debate with them? Well, I like to win, right? So we're going to have a debate. Am I trying to win? Um, You know, do, do I have the kind of mind that's always seeking extremes? All of this would be a kind of thing that's like internal self-examination 
and I would hope that we could do it, but I think we're going to be particularly slippery at this point. I'm going to have to give other con concrete marks maybe to set off warning bells. Because if this is going on or this has become a really strong habit of mine, maybe we're going to be too proud to acknowledge that we're being too proud. Right. And so so we're going to be stuck. We're not going to be able to see ourselves the way that we're really being. So. Um, like just some things to look for, and none of these none of these would be a conclusive mark in and of itself, but think of them together. Think of them as sort of an aggregate picture of things that will manifest if we are doing this. So think of you're like uh, like a physician trying to diagnose at this point, and you're diagnosing symptoms, but you're not just looking at any one symptom, but rather a pattern of symptoms that might give you in insight into what the disease is, or is there a disease present here? So do you do you find that you that you have a mind that is always seeking extremes? Do you, do you find that like one way of, of of being able to tell this is do you do you find that it's really that, that there's no relish or savor for you in, in looking at the shared doctrines that you gravitate really heavy toward the toward the controverted ones and um, like the, the the polarizing positions that are that are making co combat there there's a certain sort of tendency of mind that that will do this and let me ju just tell you um, I actually think I can make a mathematical demonstration of this at this point. So um, I can tell you that now after having posted translation portions from Poole and Heidegger and Damore, I've done a couple of thousand of them now, I think. Um, if I post something that deals with like recently, oh, look at David's really forgiving heart. Or, hey, let's look at an outline of Hosea. Those posts don't tend to do very well. But if there's something that deals with a controverted issue, everybody and their grandmother will click on that. And, and sometimes the scale of difference is really startling. Like, okay, so... Nobody is really interested in what God had to say through the prophet Hosea, or nobody's really all that interested in how Abigail um, helped to make peace between Nabal and David. Uh, but what everybody is interested in is this controversial bit concerning predestination or whatever. Like those, those will get. Uh, tons of clicks and lots of interest. Um, I, I have also found as a teacher that non-controverted doctrines more generally among Christian people, it's one of the sad facts of our age, um, kind of settled doctrines, and I'm glad they're settled, like the Trinity, will tend to get comparatively little focus, but the hot button issues, the controversial issues, the issues where you have had um, 
poles manifest and then collide in in controversy those things tend to to really activate um, people's minds but there's something really unhealthy about that don't we want to look at the um, the loveliness of our God the beauty of the divine being the the wonder and the mystery of the of the Trinity or ha have those have those doctrines lost their savor for people because those are not um, those are kind of settled among us and generally speaking you don't find as many people wanting to controvert this or that uh, aspect and if people aren't controverting it we don't want to study it and isn't that um, a symptom that there might be something wrong with us uh, spiritually um, when another thing to consider when you um, like when you survey your uh, some total of positions um, do you find that when you look at like theology culture you know things like uh, well maybe I, I don't know like modesty or recreation or whatever science medicine do you find that when you look at all of the positions do they all tend to the extreme now that doesn't again that's not going to do it all by itself because like i said maybe we have a, a culture that's so averse to the truth the truth is always going to be be out toward the fringes it's altogether possible in this environment i don't know maybe even likely but is that is that always the habit of mind that we never like if everybody if everybody kind of agrees about this we find we're kind of unhappy we want to be different in some way just because we we want to be uh, different um, are you constantly searching for positions that that differ and let me let me try to give you a concrete illustration of this that I had not not too long ago so it, it you know it, it really wasn't that long ago that um, my mind and my heart finally found rest con concerning the the six terms of, of communion I I thank the Lord for that and um, I guess I'm still young enough with it that when I when I meet somebody else that affirms the same six terms I'm kind of amazed I'm like oh wow that's kind of a rare thing and I whenever I find it I feel like it's kind of uh, kind of special and I, I find well welling up in me um, a desire just to hug people or whatever it's kind of amazing to me um, I met a fellow not too long ago who I had never met him before but he affirmed all six and while I was having kind of this strange moment that I'm just just amazed 
um, he immediately, so we've, we've just identified one another, but he immediately began to probe me for issues where I might differ from him. So this would be things that actually go beyond the six terms of communion, or he actually had another teacher in mind, things that might differentiate me from that other uh, that other teacher. And uh, truth be told, I, I went from being amazed to a little frightened in a very short space of time. It was a it, because it struck me as a as a very different manifestation of mind and heart. I was ready just to sit and maybe sit for a real long time and maybe forever in the fact that wow, look at all of this commonality between two fallen sinners. I'm just amazed. But we didn't have five seconds of that before he was like, well, enough of that. What can we fight about? It was a really peculiar uh, experience and one I, I hope not to have again anytime soon. When you, all right, so another mark, when you, when you meet another um, uh, Christian, do you, Christian, do you, and you're, of course, hopefully in love, you're seeking to, to edify. Are you content just to meet that brother or that sister right where they are? Uh, or do you, or do you have a particular set of axes that you, that you find yourself always wanting to grind? Uh, being a teacher really helped me with this. I have things that I like to talk about just like anybody else, but I, I might be in a classroom thinking, I, I hope I can make a covenanter, and I see a sincere Christian person, and I, I, I say, all right, so let's, let's turn to the book of Ezra, and a hand goes up, and uh, Dr. Dildad, where is Ezra? <laughs> And that's the level we're working on. So I might want to talk about attainments or whatever, but what really needs to happen instead is I need to help my brother find the book of Ezra and to start there because that's what will be helpful. That's what that will be edifying. And you have to start there, um, line upon line and precept upon precept, moving and building toward other things. If the desire in love is to edify, then we'll be quite content with that, uh, but if we have specific axes we're wanting to grind, we um, we will never be content with that. And this this does happen. I don't know if you have ever seen it, where uh, you have seen people that are pretty highly developed in Reformed theology meet somebody who has very little background or basis for even thinking about a lot of the issues that are involved. And they just jump right into that deep water with somebody who, who doesn't know how to doggy paddle yet. And it's very off-putting to the other person. They're like, what? What are you talking about? No idea. Right? But it's very off-putting. Um, we might, we might um, couple this with, do you, do you find that you are... Um, impatient with others when they don't share your mind about things. 
and this this could very well be one of the the best and most useful marks um, that it's really not God's cause that we're after, but we're but our own, and perhaps a little bit more perversely, we're after our own cause, our own self-aggrandizement, but we're using God's truth to do it. There's something desperately wrong with that. But if it's God's cause that we're after, we're wanting to advance God's truth for God's glory, then we'll be happy to do it in God's way. And you guys know, know the text. Well, let's look at just a couple. If, it, if we're after God's cause, then we'll be content with his way, which means we will be patient. Let me, I'll just flip and, and read these texts to you. You'll know them very well. Brethren, if a man be overtaken in a fault, ye which are spiritual, restore such an one in the spirit of meekness, considering thyself, lest thou also be tempted. That's Galatians 6.1. Or 2 Timothy chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. And the servant of the Lord must not strive, but be gentle unto all men, apt to teach, patient, in meekness instructing those that oppose themselves. If God peradventure will give them repentance to the acknowledging of the truth, and that they may recover themselves out of the snare of the devil, who are taken captive by him at his will. Right, so we've got language of, of meekness and patience. We could la add to that long-suffering and forbearance, as we have looked at it in the Ephesians uh, passage and so on in, for in former lessons. But if it's really God's cause that we're after, we'll be happy for the advancement of his truth in his way. If we're impatient with others, perhaps we're more vexed that we're contradicted than that God is contradicted. And the reason I say that is because God is demonstrating patience, right? In denying his truth or not in and not embracing it in his um, in his way. Like he's show, he's showing patience, but we're not patient with it, right? I'm. I'm saying I'm advancing God's cause, but I'm taking personal offense. There's no reason for that if I'm trying to advance God's cause. God, if the king is patient, there's no reason for his minister to be impatient. You see what I'm saying? It's a sign that something else is creeping in there. And the scripture does warn us that this knowledge can puff up. But charity will want to edify. And that's another sign. Um, in our impatience, you know how we are, we will frequently pick up our our truth sledgehammer and bury it in somebody else's skull. We're not really helping them. We're just, sometimes we like to comfort ourselves and say that we are, but we're helping at them more than actually helping them. And frequently we do, we do quite a bit of damage as if sinful nature didn't have enough tendency on its own uh, to be prejudiced against true things, um, we then present the truth in this incredibly aggressive, sometimes unreasonable, they don't have any any background for listening to what we're saying or whatever, uh, but we're, we're doing it in this really unreasonable and unsavory way, and then they're like, 
man, reformed people are toads. And we walk away and we kind of straighten our collar and we're like, yeah, yeah, I told him the truth. Okay, yeah, you, you did. But it wasn't that charity that edifieth. It now looks like you were looking to win a fight rather than advance the cause of God and build your, build your brother up, which would have required a very different method, obviously. Right? So we need to stop helping at people with our, with our truth sledgehammers and start, and start helping them. And the golden rule is, is a tremendous directive. Just think about your own manner of growth. I mean, every once in a while, by God's grace, having somebody bury the truth hammer in my head has helped, I suppose. But those are not the things that have helped me most. Um, just a brief story. When, when I was first being... So I was exposed to Reformed soteriology before anything else. Later on, I found a, a PCA church. Thanks be to God, that pastor was a Sabbatarian. Now, for those of you that know my background, I played football. I love football. Uh, I went to church on Sundays, but I watched a lot of football on Sundays, too. That was the habit of my entire life. And now he presented the, the Sabbath doctrine. You can imagine there were, there were great prejudices but his incredible patience with me and um, answering my nearly idiotic objections and whatever and just kept rolling that that ball back to me well you should probably think about that well the bible talks about that too look at this other text and it was over the period of many months, but his great patience, he was never censorious, never seemed like he was in a hurry. Um, it was amazing. So we think about our own manner of growth and how we've been slow about things and stubborn about things and how we have always appreciated people being charitable and kind and patient when we've been slow and stubborn and hard-headed and everything else. But then we get all bent out of shape when some, somebody else is slow or stubborn, hard-headed. The golden rule really helps us. We think about the way we like to, we have liked being treated. And then we treat others in like, in like manner. I do think as far as an apostolic method, patience is kind of the default default setting. There is time for the rebuke them sharply so that they might be sound in the faith. But but that's when, you know, some pretty persistent hard-headedness and so on has has manifested itself and and the and the slow and steady, the gentle reign of patience is is no longer thought to be likely to be helpful. It's at that point that the heavy artillery uh, comes out but not before. So these are, this is just kind of a conglomeration of things so that if we're, if our pride is such, we're not able to admit where we are. Maybe some of these marks that manifest externally will help us to know ourselves the way that, the way that we really are. And let me commend to you just some remedies. Um, 
first of all, years ago, and I, I was so glad that I read it because it, it helped me immensely. I was, I was reading a piece from C.S. Lewis. I don't even remember what it was anymore. Um, and he said it in such a C.S. Lewis way. It was beautiful. He said, uh, some men love the fact that they know. Some men love what they know. And those sound similar, but there couldn't be the greater, the greater difference. And it really gets at the, the, the difference here. Some, some men love the fact that they know a lot about the Bible. And they can look really smart, really clever, and they can win debates about the Bible. There's another class of people that they love the Bible. And those are different things. There are some people who love the fact that they know a lot about the Savior. And they can say a lot of things about him. And they can look smart and clever and wise or whatever. There are other people who love the Savior. And I suppose if our, if our love for the truth the truth as it is in Jesus. And remember, um, he is he is truth personified. Um, we'll probably start caring a lot less about where our where the truth lies on the the cultural spectrum. Perhaps we might find our tendency toward the center or toward the extremes strangely disappears with a lack of concern and now the only concern the abiding interest is to see Jesus just the way that he the way that he is whether that means a moderate something that's culturally moderate or something that's culturally extreme or even something that's a complete outlier only let me get to Jesus Christ and and that will be enough another thing um I think that uh, if we have a rising zeal for unity, the affected singularity that, that uh, accompanies a mind that tends towards extremes will be altogether unattractive and may, maybe even frightening. Um, I, I do think the more that we love the unity of the body of Christ, the less zeal we will have to differentiate ourselves in some way, the less zeal we'll have to want to kind of stand out or uh, be different. And maybe to combine it with the first point, maybe our goal then becomes something like, I want to see Jesus as he is, and I want everybody else to see Jesus as he is too, and that's that's the goal, that's enough, and all of those other things simply um, dry up, they simply uh, disappear. Well, at any event, it can never be a hurtful thing for us to uh, desire Christ. It can never be hurtful to us to desire to see him more clearly, to desire to see him uh, the way that he is, and then happily stand arm in arm with those that see him in like manner. Let us pray together. <clears throat>